Section 2 of How the Codex Was Found by Margaret Dunlop Gibson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 2 1. Towards the end of 1891, my sister, Mrs. James Y. Gibson, and I resolved to carry out our long-cherished plan of visiting the scene of one of the most astonishing miracles recorded in Bible history— a miracle which has hitherto baffled the most determined opponents of the supernatural in history to explain away. The passage of the Israelites through the desert of Arabia, and the spot where a still more impressive event occurred, the secluded mountaintop where the deity first revealed himself to mankind as a whole, not simply to the few chosen ones whom he had from time to time consecrated to be the exponents of his will to their fellow men. Our intentions soon became known to a few of our Cambridge friends, and we were almost overwhelmed by offers of kindly help and suggestions as to how our visit might be made useful. Mr. Rendell Harris, who visited the convent of St. Catherine in 1889, and there made the happy discovery of the Apology of Aristides, not only insisted on teaching us photography, but lent us his own camera, and accepted with Christian resignation all the little injuries we did to it. As he reported the existence in the convent of some hitherto unpublished Syriac manuscripts, I began to study the grammar with the help of the accomplished young Syriac lecturer of Queen's College, whilst another equally enthusiastic scholar, Mr. F. C. Burkett, was kind enough to teach me how to copy the ancient Astrangelo alphabet. The Regis Professor of Divinity asked us to collate two tenth-century manuscripts of the Septuagint, and the professor of geology to bring him a specimen of what is called granite graphites, a variety where the hornblende has so disintegrated itself from the rest of the stone as, when polished, to present a surface suggestive of being written over in Arabic characters. Skeptics pretend that Moses deceived the children of Israel by showing them a bit of this as the tables of the law, but of course this is pure nonsense— for a rock that is common to the whole district of Horeb must have been quite familiar to the Hebrews. So our journey promised to be none the less interesting because we expected to make some scientific profit out of it, and we could afford to laugh at the prediction that, being women, we might possibly be refused admission into a Greek convent. Our only fear was that, being such utter novices in photography, and having got our own camera only two days before we started, we might be quite incapable of doing justice to a unique opportunity. 2. The most impressive sight we saw in Cairo were the royal mummies, which are exhibited in their gorgeously painted coffins under glass in the museum. Whatever may be said in the way of discrediting the histories narrated in the Old Testament, it must henceforth be impossible for the most hardened skeptic to deny that the pharaohs, at least, have existed. The features of Ramses the Great, note, the pharaoh whose daughter, it is supposed, found Moses, end of note, are somewhat shrunk in the six years since his body was unswathed, but there are others who look almost lifelike, notably Sethi I, his equally great father. It is no exaggeration to say that for days after we looked on that tranquil, good-natured, dark face, we have seen at least a dozen negroes in the street who are exceedingly like him the very flesh, and the very expression of a man who lived three thousand years ago, are thus vividly before us. We spent much time in the American schools, listening to the children's lessons, both English and Arabic, 
But as our object in coming to Egypt was to prepare for a trip to Sinai, we first engaged a dragoman named Hannah, under Dr. Watson's kind advice, and then sought, through other friends, an introduction to the chief dignitaries of the Greek Church, who have the pastoral care of the monks in St. Catherine's convent. The Reverend Nasser Oda, Bishop Blythe's Syrian missionary to the Cyrene Jews, was kind enough to show us his own schools, and then to conduct us to the dwelling of the Patriarch. The Patriarch himself was absent in Alexandria, but we were received by his vicar, Ignatius, Metropolitan of Libya, with whom we had half an hour's conversation in his own tongue. He was extremely gracious, but said that we ought to have addressed ourselves to the Archbishop of Mount Sinai. For this prelate, he gave us his visiting card, and we found him at the convent where our dragoman had already hired the camels which were to convey us across the desert. The Archbishop gave us a most kind reception, especially after he had read a letter to the monks written for us by the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University, and remarked its interesting seal, viz. the open Bible in the center of a cross guarded by lions. He was surprised to learn that we had a printed catalogue of the Greek manuscripts in Sinai, and good-naturedly took it into his head that our object in going there was not only to make some collations of the Septuagint codices, but to further a plan by which the English might be persuaded to pronounce Greek correctly. "'We are a poor little nation,' he said, "'but our language is great, and we are striving to purify it, so that now there is nothing vulgar about it.' Both the Metropolitan of Libya and the Archbishop gave us their blessing at parting, wishing us immortality in this world and in the world to come. The latter promised to write to the monks and ask them to give us every facility for our researches in the library. He even promised us immunity from the Khamsin winds. Dr. Watson has nineteen students in his theological class, and of these, nine were to be licensed as preachers on the 3rd of February following, and then sent to work amongst the villages of the Delta. We sat in his lecture room for two hours, listening to a discussion on the tenth chapter of Romans, and on our last Sunday in Cairo he preached an eloquent sermon to them from the text, Who is sufficient for these things? The railways are very much better managed than they were in 1886. When we arrived at Suez, we were much surprised to find that a perfectly new town named Port Tufik had sprung up in the mouth of the canal. We were told that the French engineer carried the canal away from Suez because the governor of that ancient town was pursuing a dog-in-the-manger policy. Suez is therefore dwindling, whilst her young rival thrives. This is surely a warning to ourselves to be careful in choosing our municipal officers, and also to make our old institutions accommodate themselves to the want of the age. Some of the rulers of this country, British and native, with whom we had the honour of conversing, say that the spring of its wealth has astonished them, and that there is no limit to the blessings which a decent government can bestow. We were delighted to observe the look of thorough contentment in the faces of the natives, so different from the skulls we sometimes got in 1886, and altogether different from the resigned expression of the Algerians, to whom the French have shown themselves very hard taskmasters. End of section 2 Recording by Hannah Mary